Welcome to the podcast, Let the Prophet Speak. Today we are going to begin a new book. This is the book of Esther. Uh, we had just completed the book of Yechezkel, the book of Ezekiel. And the reason why I'm choosing to study Esther at this point is really a chronological and historical reason. And that is because after the first temple was destroyed, there are two prophets so far that we know of and have studied together that prophesied during the time period, or at least to some of the events recorded in those books, like in the case of Daniel, occurred soon after the destruction of the first temple. Now, the exactly the timeline in the book of Daniel we discussed when we studied Daniel or book of Daniel together, but it occurred during that time period between the two temples, during the time when the Jewish people were in exile, primarily in Babylon, and then in the Persian Empire until the Second Temple was rebuilt. Ezekiel, Yechezkel, prophesied also after the destruction of the First Temple, as we studied at the end, and discussed the restoration and return of the people to their land that was to happen in the future. After those two, there was a period of time of very um, minimal prophecy where we don't have much recorded prophetic books until the second temple was rebuilt when we have the prophecies of Haggai, that's Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah, Malachi, and Malachi, who prophesied at the beginning of the second temple, and of course the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that's Ezra and Nehemiah, which discuss the building, the rebuilding of the second temple. So there's this period in between where we have a, a vacuum, not much written. The book of Esther takes place during that time period. So after Ezekiel, I chose to study the book of Esther because it discusses an event which occurred during the time period between the two temples. <clears throat> and um, this was a time after the Babylonian Empire was eclipsed by the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire became the mightiest empire of the world. Eventually, it was this Persian Empire led by Cyrus the Great who decided that it was time to allow the Jewish people to come back to Israel and rebuild the second temple. So that is the time period, and that is why I chose to read the book of Esther. Now, after we read this book, the plan is to go back to the 12 minor prophets and read those three prophets I mentioned before, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who prophesied during the time period of the early second temple. <clears throat> okay. The book of Esther is familiar to many of us, as it is the book which tells the story which we celebrate on the holiday of Purim, a very joyous holiday on the Jewish calendar where we celebrate the uh, fact that the Jewish people were saved from a decree of annihilation, primarily by the efforts of the heroine of the story, Queen Esther, the Jewish queen who rescued her people. And we will read her story uh, in this book, which we're about to begin. And of course, the story of her uncle Mordechai, who raised her and encouraged her to to um, become the heroine that she eventually became. The book is so popular that there must have been hundreds, if not thousands, of of books written about Esther. Anyone familiar with the holiday of Purim would have probably heard many, many, many sermons and and speeches and talks and discussions about the book of Esther. So on the one hand, we know so much about it. So what can I offer in this podcast that hasn't already been done? 
Um, really, I would say there isn't much that I can offer that hasn't already been done. So I'm going to focus on the pattern that I've taken until now in, as I teach the prophets, and that is to let the prophets speak. I'm going to go back to the words, the original language, the text itself. We're going to read the text itself and try on our, on our best to go after all of the things we've heard about it. We might, you know, sometimes things get corrupted. You know, we hear all of the rabbinic explanations, we hear all of the stories and the stories about the stories and the explanations about the stories and so on. Let's go back to the actual words and try to learn what this book is trying to teach us, what the words of the text, the holy text are trying to teach us. So we're going to begin now with Esther chapter 1, verse 1, and let's allow these words to talk to us. Let's let the prophets speak for themselves. I will draw upon commentaries primarily only to help explain words or phrases or, or ideas that are coming from the text itself. It was in the days of the king of Ahasuerus. In English, that would be Ahasuerus. Now, the name Ahasuerus or Ahasuerus in English is a little difficult for me, so I'm going to refer to him by his Hebrew name, Ahasuerus. Who exactly was Ahasuerus? There are many scholars that have tried to identify him with Persian kings that we know from the historical record, Xerxes or Artaxerxes, um, and several other king, Persian kings from the time period. Uh, I'm not going to go there. You're welcome to look at the scholarly literature and decide on your own which exactly, which Persian king that he, he was. His Hebrew name here given in this book is Ahasuerosh. It does sound somewhat similar to Artaxerxes, so... In terms of the language itself, I'll, I'll assume that's who he is. But again, I'm not making an argument for sure because I really don't know. But he is Ahasuerus. He is the king Ahasuerus. Hamolech was king Mehodu Viadkush. This was at the time of the height of the Persian Empire when the empire extended Mehodu all the way from India in the east, Adkush, until the land of Ethiopia in the west. This Sheva divided up into 127 different provinces. So this was at the height of the Persian Empire. In that day, this is verse 2, when the king Ahasuerus was sitting on his throne, on his royal throne, at the time the capital was in the city of Shushan, known as also the city of Susa. Again, I'm going to call it by its Hebrew name, Shushan, just for the purposes of studying this book together. Ruling over this vast kingdom, which encompassed many different lands, many different cultures, many different languages, many different peoples, all under the, um, the uh, Persian Empire. Bishnas Shalosh Mocho was the third year of his kingdom. He decided to make a huge party for all of his officers and his servants. All of the great men of Parasumadai. We've had this term before several times, and we discussed it uh, on several occasions, that Khel means the, the, uh, the noble classes of Persia and Media. Media was closely related um, to the Persians and were, they were closely ethnically and, and um, linguistically related to Persia. So often the Persians and the Medes uh, go together. So all of the noblemen, hapartimim, again, this is some word, of, uh, that's a, a, a term of a certain high officers, and the heads of all of the 
Medinot of all of the provinces, the 127 provinces, all came to this party. So here is a party that he makes all only for the big shots, only for the for the nobles, the the big the the heads, the leaders, the upper classes. And what was the purpose of this party? The the, the um, although the, in the commentaries there are all sorts of ideas and and notions, and the rabbis discuss possible reasons for this party. But what the verse itself tells us is as follows, verse 4. The purpose of the party was one in Bihar Oto, when he showed off at Osher Kavod Mahuso the wealth of the honor of his kingdom, Vietikar, and the tremendous expensive value of Tiferet Gedulato, of the wondrous, wondrous greatness that he had. Yamim Rabim, many days he made his party, Shmonim Umat Yod, for 180 days. He did this for what purpose? To show off. This gives you an idea of the kind of person Achashverosh was. The party was made for one reason, one reason only, was to demonstrate just how powerful and how rich and how wealthy he was. Presumably, the underlying purpose of this is to consolidate his power when the people of all the provinces and the noblemen see just how wealthy and how powerful he is. That would make an impression upon them to um, stay loyal to the Persian Empire. But again, that's an assumption that seems to come out of these words. But more than that, what comes out of these words is the idea of the ultimate show-off. The, the, uh, someone who is just so taken up with himself that just wants to show it off. But then, at the end of those 180 days, then he made another party, not just for the noble classes, but for the entire nation. All the people that lived in the city of Shushan Habira, the capital, the Migadol Vadkaton, from the big ones to the small ones. So this is the noble classes and also the lower classes, the rich ones and the poor ones. At this point, he made just a seven-day party, not 180 days, but it was a seven-day party. And everyone was invited in the garden of the, um, the king's palace garden, um, that's where in the courtyard, that's where he made this party. So everyone is invited now. This is a seven-day party, a much shorter party, but everyone is invited. It's going to be interesting that the events that we're about to read about that occurred during this chapter occurred not at the big party that he made for all the noblemen, but at the party that he made for the public. That is going to be an, an, an important point. And what kinds of things did he put out? Now, one might think when one shows off to the poor, and on one hand, it seems nice that he's making a party for the poor classes as well. But on the other hand, it also, in a way, is kind of sticking it to them and saying, look, look how wealthy and how incredible I have and all of the things that I have. Remember your place because you have nothing even remotely close to this. So there's kind of a mixed bag here. And what? how did he show off? And this, remember, is to the poor classes. He showed off hor karpasu treles, hangings of white cotton and blue dyed wool, that were roped together with ropes of linen, of fine linen and purple dyed wool, that were, that were um, held up with rods made of silver and alabaster, mitosahava uh, kesef, the, the the couches and chairs which they were sitting upon were gilded with gold and silver or its paspat fashesh and the floor was paved with with bahat fashesh vidarabusukharas alabaster marble mother of pearl and mosaics on the floor. Yashkot the drink was being given in golden cups, bechelim mechelim shonim, 
and other types of interesting and unusual vessels to drink from. And there was much, much, much wine from the king that the king was able to give from his own um, belongings. And the drink was to be given by the following rule. There's no need to stop. Anyone wants to drink, you give them as much as they want. This the king established. And all the people that were in charge, all the waiters, all of the people in charge of giving out the food had the following instructions from the king. To do as every man wants. Now, so here the king is giving them a taste of freedom. The idea that everyone can do as he wants. The problem that comes from this problem, and I say problem in quotation marks in this society that was then, is that once you start opening up the can of worms and allowing people to feel equal and do what they want and ask for what they want, other people that the king may not want to be on a level of equality, most notably women, will also start to ask for what they deserve. Now, of course, they justly deserve it, but in the society that they were in, the king is going to realize soon that now I'm letting everyone do what they want, but the women are going to take it a step too far, and I'm not ready to let the women have equality. So let's see. The next verse, therefore, is verse 9. So the queen, Vashti, also asked Hashem. She said, okay, we're having a party. I'm making a party for the women. In the house of the king, and she made it in the king's house, the, the house of the king. So far, the king is okay with this. But then, on the last day of the party, what did the king want to do? The one thing he wasn't willing to allow happen was that his wife, his woman, should feel like an equal. That his wife should feel like she can be making a party for women just like the men have a party. So when the king's heart was drunk with wine, Omar le he said to his, his um, seven eunuchs that served him, it's notable that the eunuchs are the ones that he trusts to, to communicate with the women because they are castrated and therefore cannot, um, cannot uh, defile, so to speak, his wives, cannot get involved with his wives sexually. So therefore he trusts them when he's referring to the women. These are Shivas Asaris, and that's, those are the names of the seven eunuchs that serve the king Achashverosh. Through his eunuchs, he can, he can rule, so to speak, over even his wife, the queen, and therefore command her not just to come to bring it Vashti Hamalcha, to bring the queen Vashti, because now he is worried that he's going to lose his grip over his wife. This just goes to show what kind of a person we are dealing with and how he treated his wife in such an incredibly um, meaning and, 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 um, and um, uh, misogynistic, which is a very kind word. It's much worse than that. And that misogyny is bad enough. But he wanted her to appear in front of the king wearing the crown. The inference is wearing the crown, but not wearing much else, that he wanted her to come in a very immodest way. So she can show all of the people that are gathered here, all of the nations, meaning the lower classes, and the sarim, and the princes, how beautiful she is, because she is beautiful. 
The king was ready to extend equality to everyone, at least for this short period of time. But his queen, he wanted her to appear in a very immodest way in front of not just the princes, which would have been awful, but in front of everyone, even the lower classes. So he sent his eunuchs with that message. And the queen did not hear of this. She did not want to comply for many very, very understandable reasons. The queen Vashti refused to come when the king commanded. This message that was brought to her by the eunuchs. And the king was extremely angry. And his anger burned and welled up within him. And then the king said to all of his wise officers, those that know the times. In those days, the, the, the wise men who knew how to calculate through astrology when is the right time for certain things to happen and do certain things, those were the wise men, those were the intelligent men. Because this is the way of the king, that he usually would turn to ask his questions from those that know the religion and know the laws of their religion and the ways of their religion, which is to ask these these astrologers, to ask them, what should I do? I'm angry at her. I'm incensed at her. What should I do? Who are the closest uh, wise men to him? The following seven people. Those seven of them were the Shavat Sarei Parasuma. These were the seven um, officers of the Persians and the Medes, that could come and see the king at any time and talk to him. Who sat first. These were the wise men's counsel that the king counseled when he had a question. So he asked them, What should I do? With the queen Vashti, that she did not do, the word of the king, that was brought to them through these eunuchs. Now, because this slight against the king that was done by Vashti, it was done in a context of the king's attempt to show that not all that women are not going to be part of this group of equal people, and the 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 his dominion over women, especially his dominion even over his wife, is going to remain. So this incredible affront against women is an important aspect, is, is the main aspect of this first chapter. The very fact that it was a woman, Esther, who will later subvert the king's decree and save the Jewish people is really one of the primary, if not the primary and inherent messages of this, um, of this book. And that is, is that although the king attempted and tried to, to um, demean and humiliate his wife, a woman, it was a woman who stood up to his power and subverted his power and subverted his decree and saved the people. So one of the primary messages of this book is to be very careful and to be much, much more respectful and of women and, ha and, and treat them the way they deserve to be treated and, um, and to not, God forbid, God forbid, try to demean someone to the extent uh, it's much more than not demeaning someone, of course. Uh, it, respecting someone appropriately means much more than that. But this is one of the primary messages of this book, and I want you to look out for this as we read through. And these are the things that the prophet is speaking. These are the messages that this book is trying to tell us. We're not reading into the book. We're reading it from the words themselves. So what advice did they give him? 
understanding that what the king was upset about was not just uh, the, the slight from the queen, but they understood that the king was upset because um, his whole idea of, uh, you know, I can rule this great kingdom, but this woman here being equal to me or being having a voice of her own is something that I cannot tolerate. So understanding that and understanding that the idea that he as a man wanted to dominate the woman in his life was, was central to making the king happy and getting him out of his anger. So what did they answer? One of those seven advisors said, before the king and the other six advisors, it wasn't just against the king that Vashti, the queen, did, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, committed an offense. Her offense was against all of the officers and even the lower classes where the man wants to dominate and should dominate over the woman. Those that live in all of the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus. Why is this? Verse 17, The word of the queen that not only did she make her own party, but she refused to listen to the king and she refused to be humiliated in front of all these people. That word will go in front of all women and they're all going to get the idea that it's their right to embarrass their husbands in front of them. When they hear that the king has said, when the king commanded that the queen come in front of him and she didn't come, she didn't listen. Therefore, I want you to say, and now what's going to happen? All of the women Officers, all of the ladies of Persia and Media, that heard what happened with the queen, they are going to state that. They're going to say, hey, look what happened. And they're going to say this to their husbands. And there will be so much of people, be, uh, of the men being embarrassed and ashamed and in front of their wives. And this would be terrible. The women are going to make fun of their husbands. It's going to ruin the whole society. One can imagine this going in a completely different direction had they realized from Vashti's actions that the way they were treating their wives was wrong and needed to be fixed. But of course, that is not where stubborn people go, especially not stubborn men, and especially not stubborn men in the leadership positions in which they were in the times in which they lived. Verse 19, so therefore, what should we do? If the king wants to do as follows, let him... Uh, make a decree, a, a royal decree, and let him write in the laws of Persia and Media, or laws that will never be uh, rescinded. That Vashti will no longer ever come before the king of She's going to be banished from the king. And her royal position will be given to another woman who is better than her. In other words, another woman who will do what the king wants and be subservient. And the judgment of the king will then hurt, be heard, that which he will do in all of his kingdom, because his kingdom is a great kingdom. And then we will have fixed the problem. Kind of with a little smirk I'm saying that, because this problem is obviously far from fixed. Now all the women will know that they have to give honor to their husbands, not only the great royals, but even in the lower classes, the small, poorer people, they will be, have, um, have respect from their wives. So at least 
that will remain the way it should be, where the man dominates over the woman. Verse 21, Every time we read the, this the, in, the, in Megillah Esther, in the book of Esther, we get this feeling that the writer has like a little smirk. Uh, the writer is kind of smiling. But this is their intention to show that women are subservient and to give men honor. And what's going to happen? Those men who sought that honor are going to be dishonored. And not only are they going to be dishonored, they're going to be dishonored by a woman who is so, so much better than them. The writer of this book was a genius because everything he wrote has this little sense of humor behind it, which is really the sense of humor that is the holiday of Purim. Everything does not have... People think and people assume things are as they is, but really behind the scenes, things are very much not like they think it is. So, the king did as Mulchan advised. This is verse 22. He sent scrolls throughout all of the, the um, provinces of the king. He wrote to every province in its own alphabet, and he wrote to every nation that was under his dominion according to their language, that what was the rule, that each man should be the ruler of the household, every man is the boss. Now, one of the problems in his big society seems to have been that men would marry women from some of the other nations, and the women wanted the men to respect their language, their heritage, as a gesture of respect, you know, let's we should speak both languages in the home. We should have both traditions in the home. That the woman that comes into a marriage with a tradition and a heritage into a family should be able to honor and celebrate and and respect her heritage as well. But no, that was a this was considered to be a terrible source of discord. The man is the boss. Only his heritage matters. Only his language matters. Therefore, in the decree they wrote, "Umidaber kilashon amo," that. The, the language of the household is the language of the husband. That the one he can speak his language. She needs to learn his language. That um, is the most common interpretation of those last words, and it fits the words literally the best. Um, and uh, therefore, I'm using that translation. There are other explanations of midaber kilashonamo, but I'm letting the prophet speak, and those fit the words the best. So that concludes chapter one of the book of Esther. Thank you so much for studying it together with me. Looking forward to studying chapter two together and of course the rest of the book of Esther.